All right, welcome back to Know Thyself. Today we have an interview of a completely different kind. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kelly Smith. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Biological Sciences at Clemson. He's a fellow of the Rutland Institute for Ethics and Clinical Assistant Professor at the USC School of Medicine. Dr. Smith holds a PhD from Duke University. He has a master's in zoology, uh, specializing in evolutionary genetics from Duke University. You also hold joint appointments at Clemson's Department of Biological Sciences and as the C. Calhoun Lemon Fellow at the Rutland Institute of Ethics. So you've got a lot of hats that you wear. Yeah, depending on the day you happen to catch me, I'm wearing different hats. You've worked in the areas of biotech ethics, analysis of the creation-evolution debate. I have to just say, you must be a stalwart soul to wander into that arena. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that actually takes very seriously the, the responsibility that academics have to educate the public. And, you know, if you're doing philosophy and, and evolutionary theory together, you have to deal with creationism sooner or later. And, I, you know, I think that it's worthwhile trying to talk to people as openly as possible about this, try to figure out why they believe what they believe, and then try to explain to them why it is that scientists uh, believe in evolutionary theory. It's not just that we believe. There, there are really good reasons for believing that. You know, that kind of introduces a topic I wanted to get to, but I, I think it should come up now. What do you think of the state of public discourse in our country right now? Oh, well, it's pretty depressing. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think just recently on my Facebook page, I, I posted a quote by Charles Darwin, which I think sums it up quite nicely. He said, great is the power of steady misinterpretation. Uh, so he was talking about the ways in which his theory had been misinterpreted. But I think, you know, if you... If you believe in things because you want to believe in them, as opposed to because you have good reasons for thinking they're true, down that way lies madness. I mean, you may be a happy person, I suppose, but uh, only in the short term, because you can justify anything on the grounds that people like to believe it. And I think it's, I'm not sure what the future holds. I'm, I'm deeply worried about, the, about our country. Do you think social media and the ability to get online and just spend every moment in kind of this virtual echo chamber has diminished the state of our discourse? I think, I mean, I, I tend to be the kind of person that, that doesn't like to blame the technology because I think all too often people jump on that bandwagon and, and fail to see that a lot of times the technology holds the answer to, to the problems that it creates. So there may be ways in the future that we structure social media so that it's a, a very powerful tool for education. But yeah, I think that one of the problems you run into is that when you have an online community, anybody with any view, no matter how weird or rare it is, will be able to find a community of people who agree with them. And we know that human psychology is such that if I find people who agree with me, I'm much more convinced that I'm correct uh, without any kind of estimation of whether or not the people who agree with me know what they're talking about. Just, you know, if seven people agree with me, then I must be right. And every single group can now do that. And so you get more and more further and further partisan divides, less and less communication between groups. And ultimately, that's not going to be able to continue forever. I don't know what the what follows after that is going to be like, but that can't continue forever. You know, and I'm always one of those that's kind of skeptical of this sanctimonious hand ringing, oh, this is the worst generation for public discourse ever. <laughs> I don't know that. It just seems awfully bad right now. It does. But then, you know, as I, as I sometimes admit to people, when I, when I complain about these kinds of things, I always keep in the back of the mind, 
that I'm, I'm getting old and I'm, I'm something of a crotchety old man now. And, you know, my father used to tell me how horrible my generation was. I'm sure his father told him how horrible his generation was. You have to accept the fact that there is a very definite pattern here. And I think that one of the things that happens with new technologies is that people can see much more clearly what the disadvantages are because the disadvantages are usually in terms of destroying what they're familiar with. And they can see that part really clearly. But what they can't see very clearly is what advantages the future will hold because that's a new sort of thing that they're not familiar with. And the classic example of this I give to my students is uh, Socrates was a real skeptic about writing. You know, he thought this newfangled technology was going to destroy the oral tradition. And of course, he was right. It did destroy the oral tradition. But it also brought about all kinds of things that he could not possibly have foreseen, libraries and the rise of science and public education, you know. So he was right in a way to be skeptical, but just very short-sighted. I, I don't remember who the philosopher was. It might have been Schopenhauer talking about how just the proliferation of books was destroying our ability to think and reason. <laughs> and so I think <laughs> exactly. you're right. Exactly. There will be people in 100 years that look back on pronouncements of these techno-pessimists and say, yeah, they didn't really get it. I was doing some research into whether there are any ethical or metaphysical implications from the Big Bang model of cosmology. And I found a paper that mm -hmm. you published in 2014. Now, that's four years old, but in the world of ethics, that's like a newborn. <laughs> and the paper is called Manifest Complexity, a Foundational Ethic for Astrobiology. And since this is not a philosophy podcast, but it's essentially a history <laughs> podcast, I wanted to do a little foundational work. So what drew you to the study of philosophy? When I was an undergraduate, I was always the, the kid that was interested in everything, and I could never figure out what exactly it was I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, and so I studied physics and astronomy and chemistry and history. And then I finally discovered uh, philosophy. I took a philosophy of biology course and uh, was really fascinated by it. And I realized that, well, if you, if you become a philosopher, then you can study pretty much anything you want to because... You know, philosophy of X, where X is whatever, uh, works. You can do philosophy of history, philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of physics, philosophy of literature. Um, and that sounded really good to me, where I could do philosophy of, of science kinds of things, and I could hang around with scientists and work on the more interesting questions in science without having to have a, a lab and worry about getting grants and things like that. That sounded extremely attractive to me. So you weren't one of those people who was seduced into it by the high law school acceptance rates of philosophy majors? No, I never had much interest in law school. I mean, lots of people in my family wanted me to go to law school, but uh, yeah, that never really appealed to me very much. <laughs> I was the guy that liked thinking about the problem. To be a philosophy major, you have to be the kind of person who, uh, who can view a problem that people have been arguing about for 2,000 years and say to yourself, yeah, I think I can make some progress here. <laughs> There's a certain <laughs> amount of self-deception uh, or arrogance, I guess, that's involved in that. And that was me when I was, you know, 20 years old. You're also a biology major. How do these two disciplines overlap or interact with each other? Every discipline has a theoretical fringe. Whether it's biology or physics or any other science, you know, there are these questions that come up that typically, say, biologists or physicists only talk about with their grad students over beers. You know, they don't really work on them because uh, the likelihood of making a breakthrough is very low. But, you know, if you're in physics, you, you get these questions about the nature of, of time or what preceded the Big Bang. And, and, 
these kinds of questions in biology, especially in evolutionary biology, which was the most interdisciplinary area of biology until astrobiology came along, you, you get these sort of basic questions like, well, what exactly is a species, which is an extremely difficult question. Or, you know, is evolutionary biology in any sense uh, a religion? And there are people that make this claim. And, you know, it, so there's there are these interesting questions that the biologists themselves sort of are not well equipped to answer. They'll recognize that they're good questions, but they don't really deal with them. And so I sort of got drawn into that where, you know, you could you could do research on these questions and talk to biologists. And the biologists would say, yes, that's I'm glad you did that. That's interesting work. But they themselves weren't competing with you. So, you know, I found a, I found a little niche <laughs> I could occupy. And what value have you gotten out of studying philosophy? That, that's a really difficult question to, to answer in a way. Very few kids have philosophy in high school, right? And so they don't really know what philosophy is like. And their parents are probably telling them, whatever you do, don't major in that weird stuff that's not going to get you a job. Uh, and sometimes I get students who take a philosophy course and they come to me and you can tell, <laughs> you can just tell but they're really intrigued. They're like, wow, these people think like I do. I didn't realize you could make a living doing this. And, and they're interested in majoring in philosophy. And what I always try to do, I, I, I discourage graduate work in philosophy. That's a, whole other, that's a whole other thing. But, you know, I think philosophy is actually an excellent undergraduate major. It's just hard to explain exactly what you get from it. It's not about learning about dead white guys, though you do that. It's really a sort of exercise and thinking for its own sake. You think about thinking. And so you really are become very accustomed to the standards for thinking, and you can take any problem and sort of analyze it in a very general way and spot logical problems. Uh, you can identify the main point very easily. And we've had majors go on to be pilots and business people and stuff like that, and they all come back and they go, you know, this stuff is actually extremely useful. <laughs> it's just hard to explain to my colleagues how my philosophy training helped me do that, but it is actually very useful. And, you know, personally, I get, uh, I get a lot of satisfaction from being able to work on really difficult problems um, in my own time, and that's, that's one of the great things about being a philosopher. You give me a, a laptop and a quiet space, and that's really pretty much all I need. I was a philosophy major in college for a while. Oh, yeah. Now you out yourself. <laughs> I know. I know. In the interest of full disclosure, and kind of at a time when you're evaluating all your values and everything. And right. I made this, I, I don't think it was a well-considered decision, to purchase a little book called Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. I was <laughs> off to the races after that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, we get a lot of people who come into philosophy for, for Nietzsche's sake, and then a lot of people who leave philosophy for Nietzsche's sake. I, <laughs> exactly. I'm not a Nietzschean kind of guy myself, but yeah, it, it appeals to people at a certain age in, in their, uh, their development. Right. You know, it's interesting to me because physicists will often dismiss philosophy as no longer relevant or useless. And religious people right. will warn you against it, saying it's dangerous or it's subversive to your faith. Um, other people ignore it, like you say, because you can't make a buck off of it very easily. Right. But what I love about every one of those opinions about philosophy is they're kind of philosophical positions. I mean, to say philosophy is exactly. useless is a philosophical <laughs> statement. Yeah, I, I, I like to, to give the quote by Friedrich Engels, the, the co-author of the Communist Manifesto. He said, uh, to refuse to do philosophy is to be the slave of the worst philosophy. And, and what he meant was, look, you have philosophical positions. You can't avoid taking philosophical positions. You can avoid thinking about them or, quote-unquote, doing philosophy, 
But all that guarantees is that you have the James Sixpack version of these philosophical positions that's probably problematic in all kinds of ways that you don't realize. So you, you have a bad philosophical position, <laughs> but you haven't sidestepped philosophy. It's too fundamental for that. Plus, it always annoys me when my science colleagues talk talk uh, smack about philosophy because I'm like, dude, we created you. <laughs> the scientific method is a philosophical method. You would not exist if it weren't for philosophy. Don't slap your mother. Exactly. It's kind of attacking exactly. the very tool exactly. that you're using. Like, well, all right, man. After reading that, I realized that there was a whole world that I I knew nothing about, and it was the ideas right. and the big picture that really drew me into it. I see that you've been involved with NASA. How did you get involved with NASA? Well, several years back, I guess it's running on 10 years now, the AAAS, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, and NASA were doing a joint workshop, and they were interested in questions about the nature of life, which is, you know, one of those boundary questions in biology. Um, and a colleague of mine was invited, but he couldn't go, so he, he fobbed it off on me. <laughs> and I went to Washington and, and sat around a conference room with a bunch of NASA guys for three or four days, and really, really enjoyed it. I thought, uh, first of all, these questions are really interesting and they're deeply philosophical and nobody else is much working on them. And secondly, these people all understand my nerdy humor, you know, so <laughs> I remember making a reference to the prime directive at one point and everybody around the table nodded, you know, except this one guy who was like, what's the prime directive? And everybody looked at him like, well, how did you get in here? <laughs> I thought, okay, I, I want to work with these people more. And so after that, I I sort of spent more and more of my time thinking about these weird boundary questions in astrobiology, and, and now I do this full-time. This is, this is really my, my research focus. So was that your first introduction to astrobiology? Yeah. You know, I've always been sort of a science fiction buff and, and, and always followed NASA developments and things like that, but it just never occurred to me that, that there was a research project here, much less one that would, you know, sustain me for years. Uh, but then, you know, like you were saying about your college experience, you get exposed to the ideas and you think, these are workable. Like, <laughs> there's all kinds of, of work that needs to be done on these ideas and nobody seems to be much tackling it. So I will, I will take that on. So if my listeners are unfamiliar, and I was unfamiliar with the whole idea of astrobiology, it sounded like studying ectoplasm or something. What is the study <laughs> of astrobiology? Well, astrobiology is uh, one of the newest scientific disciplines uh, and one of the most interdisciplinary. So it all surrounds uh, questions about uh, finding life beyond Earth. This is one of NASA's main project goals. It's also one that the Europeans share. Chinese don't care too much about it, or the Russians. So, you know, if you take seriously the possibility that there is life out there beyond Earth, then a whole bunch of questions present themselves, which are, I sometimes call them extra scientific with scare quotes. They're not unscientific, but they're these boundary kinds of questions. So, for example, if you're going to look for life on another planet, you need to know what it is you're looking for, <laughs> right? And although every biology textbook has a definition of life in the first chapter, it's not really a very good definition. All it is is a list of common characteristics that we find in life on Earth, but if you think you might find life on Mars, then you have to ask questions like, well, are we confident it would be cellular? There's really no reason to believe it would be based on nucleic acids. Would liquid water be necessary? It's not entirely clear, and, and so you have 
these sort of theoretical questions like that. And then, of course, there's a whole slew of sort of social and ethical questions about should it be nice to other life if we find it? And, you know, what, what are our responsibilities for the future of life and the universe? And again, there's, I think, you're beginning to get a critical mass of people who realize this is not just science fiction and are starting to think about this, but it's still a very new discipline. Did you find in these conferences at NASA any people who are skeptical or hesitant, maybe question the wisdom of broadcasting ourselves out to the universe? Any life form yeah. that could actually respond to that signal is obviously going to have higher levels of technology and capability than we do. This usually goes under the heading of METI. So it's the sister of SETI. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and METI is messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. And there's now a huge debate raging in the community about METI. We've done it sort of half-heartedly uh, many times, but we've never really made a systematic effort. And there are people in the scientific community who want to undertake such an effort. There are private individuals who want to spend you know, their own private money to do this. There's a guy who runs what's called the Interstellar Beacon Project. He wants to beam, literally beam Wikipedia to every single star he can reach during his lifetime, and he's already rented the telescope time. Uh, so, you know, whether we like it or not, this is happening. And then there's there's a pretty strong reaction to this. There's a community of people, including myself, who think for various kinds of reasons this is a very bad idea. Um, and the proponents and the opponents are sort of fighting it out in the literature right now. It's an interesting sort of timely application of some of these questions. Well, did this paper did grow out of that experience? Probably not that very first conference where we were just talking about life, but uh, some of the subsequent conferences I went to at the Library of Congress, for example, um, when we started getting into ethical issues, one of the things that, that I realized rather quickly is that most of the people who work in astrobiology come from some sort of science or engineering background. And many of them are very interested in social and ethical questions, but they don't have a lot of background in there. And sometimes they underestimate their ignorance. And one of the weird dynamics I originally ran into was I would, I would take what in philosophy is a very standard sort of position. It's not, not without its detractors, but it's got a long history of saying, look, you know, rational creatures are special. So there's a fundamental difference between talking about our duties to another rational being and talking about our responsibilities to a microbe. Those are, those are fundamentally different kinds of things. And I kept getting these reactions at conferences from the astrobiology folks of, okay, but what's your ethical position? <laughs> I would say that, that is my ethical position. And they, they just sort of naively thought that if you're defending reason as being special, then that's some sort of indefensible anthropocentrism. And so I started really thinking hard about the nature of reason and why reason is uh, an important sort of feature in the universe. And I realized that reason was really not quite the right way to go, that what we're really talking about is more like the capacity to form communal relationships. And although reason is a very important component of that, it's not the only one. And that's kind of where that paper came from. I was actually writing a much more prosaic paper for a publication. And I was, of course, behind schedule and past the deadline. And I was trying to get it finished. And it was the only time in my career where the paper kind of wrote itself. You know, I've heard authors sometimes talk about the characters speaking to them and not quite knowing how the 
book's going to end, and I always thought that was weird. But this is one of those situations where I wrote the paper, and then I sort of sat back and said, oh, well, okay, that happened. Um, I'm not really quite sure what I think about this paper, but since I was past the deadline, I, I went ahead and, and submitted it. And so that sort of staked out my position on a whole host of these strange questions about whether or not the universe has a, a complexity trend and what the implications of that might be for ethics. And I'm still thinking about that. Ultimately, I'm going to have to write a book that really works through this in much more detail. But I, I think the way I normally put it to people is I'm still not sure that the ideas in that paper were actually correct. But even if they're wrong, they're sort of interestingly wrong. So they're worth exploring. Yeah, and I think this opens up a perfect opportunity to talk about some of these terms. When you've used the term ethics, what is ethics? Well, of course, since philosophers talk about ethics, there's some debate over the, the meaning of that term. The simplest way of thinking about ethics is ethics involves a sort of systematic justification uh, for rules concerning how people should treat one another. A lot of people make a distinction between ethics and morals, whereas morals are more like the rules you learn from your grandmother, you know, the, the cultural mores, as it were. Uh, and those may or may not be justifiable in a more systematic sense. So that's basically what ethics is, at least without getting into territory that people debate. So you say it's rules about how people treat each other. It seems to me that people have an ethical concern for the planet, for other creatures. Do those also play into the study of ethics? Well, of course. One of the things, one of the reasons I use the word people instead of humans uh, is because a lot of a lot of times ethicists will say uh, have a much broader definition of what counts as a person. So, for example, uh, if we meet aliens that are intelligent, spacefaring with an advanced civilization, uh, the ethicists would say, okay, these are people. They're not human beings, but their species designation is not really important. What's important is they have these more general features which allow us to count them as a fellow person. And similarly, they may argue that just because someone's human doesn't necessarily mean he's a person if someone's in a persistent vegetative state for 20 years and has essentially no brain left, then lots of philosophers say it's that that is a human, but it's no longer a person, and therefore it doesn't deserve the same moral standing as a person would. I see, and so the rationality you were talking about earlier is one of the criteria for determining personhood. Exactly. I mean, and you, and you can debate exactly which criterion or criteria you want to apply to this, but for an ethicist, what what really fundamentally matters is you have to you have to be able to specify a clear criterion. You can't just sort of say, "Well, I like those things, so they have moral standing." Um, when I was in biology, I remember learning the most important distinction in all of biology is between warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. Uh, warm fuzzies, you have to fill out all kinds of animal research guidelines to work on. But cold pricklies, like bugs and sea urchins, nobody cares. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to to them. And, you know, the reason that's kind of funny is because we're trying to make an explicit criteria out of something that's just silly, right? If there is a moral difference between sea urchins and bunny rabbits, it's not that one of them is warm and fuzzy and one of them is cold and prickly. It's something else, right? And then the question becomes, okay, what is that other thing? The first sentence of your paper I'm just going to quote it. it. says, one of the truly fundamental questions in moral philosophy is this. On what basis do entities acquire moral value? And so right. is that what you mean by personhood? Those are other beings to which we have some moral obligation? 
Right. It's a, that's a common way to use the term is if something is a person, it is, it is a member of the moral community and it has moral standing, presumably on a par with, with human beings or at least in the same ballpark. And if something's not a person, it might have some moral standing, but of a lesser kind. And then, of course, then the debates start about exactly who, what falls in that category under what circumstances and how much moral value they have, et cetera, et cetera. You can even get things like uh, the PETA folks who argue fly equals dog equals boy, uh, which I always think is something of a, of a reductio to the absurd. I mean, if you really literally mean that, uh, it has incredibly counterintuitive consequences. But I think a lot of people will say something like that without literally meaning it, and then when you press them on it, they get mad at you and accuse you of being too philosophical. But all you're really trying to do is make them clarify their claim. You know, you, you said something earlier about, about the way in which our society tends to be functioning. I think one of the sad things about modern society is that people don't really quite get the idea of reasoned discourse. You know, they think an argument is yelling at each other or whatever happens on crossfire or something like that. They don't, the, the, the whole idea of two intelligent people sitting down and trying to get at the truth, even though they may disagree fundamentally. You know, I have lots of colleagues that, that I think are just wrong, and I'm sure they think the same thing about me. But we can have a very complicated civil discussion trying to figure out, we're, we're both trying to figure out who's right about what, and, and if, if we can't do that, at least figure out why is it that we disagree about this? What is the fundamental claim that we don't agree on, and, and how could we resolve that sort of dispute? That's just, I think, an art that's largely been lost, and it's one of the values of philosophy, is that it's, it's one of the few places in the world where that kind of discourse is the norm. In your paper, you say that reason is one of the primary ways by which we confer moral value or determine the moral value of another being. Uh, right. And yet you say it's necessary but not sufficient, if I'm reading your paper correctly. You add not just reason but sociality and culture. Mm -hmm. Why is it right. necessary to have that triad, as you call it? What does that add that reason alone doesn't? Yeah, first I should say, if anybody has a better name than the SRCT triad, I would love to hear it. I hate that name, but I couldn't come up with a better one. Then I'm going to use it at least 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe one of your listeners will call in and say, here's a great name. There's, there's two sort of ways to get at that problem. My personal view, since I'm an evolutionary biologist, is that fundamentally what ethics are, are systems of rules that facilitate interaction amongst beings that are in a society together, a community of some kind. They're, they're social stability parameters, right? Uh, that, that's my view about what ethics is. That's highly controversial with, with my fellow ethicists. But, you know, if you, if you swallow that, and then you, you think a bit, on the other hand, about evolutionary biology. So uh, a lot of times people will talk about extraterrestrial intelligence. And the starting point they have is, well, that could be anything. Like, you know, students oftentimes say, well, aliens could be completely different from us. And I say, well, you know, maybe. But let's think about that. that. That's a claim that seems obvious on its face, but think about that. How does one become an intelligent being, right? If we leave out the possibility of design, whether by God or by some, you know, progenitor species or something like that, if we leave that aside, we're talking about evolution. Things have to evolve to become intelligent. And how does that happen? Well, 
intelligence is highly useful, in particular when you're in a situation where you are social, where you have to interact with other beings. There's all kinds of evidence that reason and sociality sort of go hand in hand. They both reinforce the other. If you're a social being and you develop the capacity to better understand the people in your society, then you can interact with them better, right? And if you're a rational being, then one of the skills, one of the advantages you can get over other kinds of beings is you can actually talk to your fellow beings and you can develop, you know, a group of people to do things you could never do individually. So the basic idea is that in evolution, you get sociality and reason co-evolving very intimately. And I think that would happen anywhere in the universe that intelligence involves. It's not just a human thing. And then culture immediately follows because culture is just sort of the, the handmaid of those two. And so you get culture, you get science, you get technology, all that good stuff. And so what you really have is a situation where ethics is about managing a social grouping of these kinds of beings. And if that's the way you think about it, then the next question you can ask is, okay, well, would ethics be anything goes? Would it be the case that alien beings might not have ethics at all or might have an ethics that's fundamentally different from ours? And I suspect that the answer to that question is no. Alien beings are going to be evolved like us. They're going to be social like us. They're going to have ethical systems. Now, of course, the systems would not be identical to ours. I mean, the systems on Earth aren't identical to each other. But you can make an argument that the systems on Earth differ in, differ in degree, not really in kind, right? So every society, I would argue, probably has some sort of injunction against killing conspecifics. You know, thou shalt not kill. Every society might have footnotes that go along with that about when it's okay to do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, they all have a sort of primary injunction against killing each other. Why? Because you can't imagine organizing a society in which people feel no compunction about killing each other. It just doesn't make for a stable society. So where there is no society, ethics has no role. Certainly where there is no society, I don't think that ethics has a role. And that, that's what I mean, I guess, in part by saying that reason is not a sufficient condition. If we're going to play philosopher and just think about hypotheticals, you know, hypothetically, if you had a being that was completely rational but wasn't social at all and had no emotional drives of any kind, so, you know, it could calculate and it could contemplate problems in a completely objective fashion, that being wouldn't necessarily have to have ethics. And it, wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't feel something like empathy for other beings that are like itself. So it would be rational in some sense of that word, but it wouldn't be ethical. I just don't think that you're going to get a being like that unless it's been engineered into existence. Because if it evolves, it's not going to be like that. So is it the same that the being is ethical and that we have an ethical responsibility to it? I mean, so even if this being wasn't ethical or unethical because it had no interaction with any other creature. If we encountered such a being, the fact that we are now interacting with it, does that make it an object of ethical concern? Well, I think a being like that would, would have some ethical value, even if it weren't a person. It would have some ethical value just by virtue of being unique and special. So, you know, in the same way a mountain range might have some ethical value, not they would be a person, but on the other hand, destroying it willy-nilly would be problematic. No, Would no, that be introducing a new criteria for ethical concern, which is specialness? I think the, the 
the way to look at it is that there are different kinds of things that have moral value. And the primary kind of thing is going to be beings that have this social, cultural, uh, rational triad. Those kinds of beings can fully participate in a community pretty much however you describe that. You know, we can make agreements, we can sign contracts, we can help each other, we can hurt each other. We are members of the same community. On the other side of the scale, there are interesting things that are rare and maybe valuable instrumentally, but can't really participate in the community at all, like a mountain range. And then there's a whole smear in between there. You know, microbes, well, you know, microbes can participate in a community in some sense. Most of the cells in our body are not human, and they're necessary for our survival, but we don't have a very complicated back and forth with them, certainly not at a conscious level. On the other hand, my dog, I, I had a family dog die after 16 years the other day, and it was traumatic because, you know, she was she was literally a member of the family. She, we never had a conversation about ethics, but uh, she was clearly a member of our family community. It, the philosophy oftentimes involves these sort of line-drawing dilemmas where it's extremely difficult to say precisely where a line is located, and that's, that's just the way the world works. What you should not conclude from that is that there are no distinctions to be made. So there are distinctions, I would argue, to be made between a being that's social and rational and cultural and a being that's not, even if there will always be some gray areas where people can debate endlessly about whether or not a gorilla counts this way or that way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You might have come across this objection. If you make rationality, sociality, and culture your criteria for ethics, what about a being like Eleanor Rigby? She just sits all alone. She doesn't have a lot of culture. She doesn't have a lot of society. Right. Do we owe her less moral obligation than somebody who has a large group of friends or somebody who's more rational or more cultured? Is this a degree thing or is it an absolute? Well, you know, you you could go that route. I would not be inclined to do that. You could say, well, if it's all about the degree of uh, sociality and culture and rationality, then we'll just scale your moral value to that. On the other hand, there's also an obvious move you can make to say, look, these kinds of things are digital, not analog, right? So Within large boundaries, we allow that these kinds of organisms, even though there's a lot of individual variation in these particular capacities, these kinds of organisms are different in kind from other kinds of organisms that have much lower capacities. And you can say give you can give uh, moral standing to someone who's in a coma, basically by default. You can say even though this particular being does not have these capacities, it nevertheless is a member of our community because it used to have the capacities and people are attached to it. Again, this is a, a certain kind of line-drawing issue. Now, here's an interesting uh, implication, though, of what I have to say, and that is, again, people oftentimes accuse me of being uh, horribly anthropocentric, and I have the perfect rejoinder to that, though sometimes I think it's worse. Uh, you know, Imagine we encounter an alien race, and imagine that these aliens are fundamentally better than we are at reason, culture, and sociality. And I mean fundamentally, not just they think a little bit faster or they learn calculus when they're in third grade. They they operate at a different level of operation. They're just they're just a different order of existence in these in these respects. Would they have more moral value than human beings? 
And I'm willing to bite that bullet. I'm willing to say, yes, you know, I, I don't know how likely it is that we've encountered those beings, but if we did, and somehow there was some zero-sum choice where, you know, either the human beings, either the human race continues or the Vogons continue, and everybody agrees, oh, yes, the Vogons are clearly in a different category than we are, then I think we have a moral duty to step aside for the Vogons. And what about a being that is superior to us but is fundamentally hostile to us, like aliens? I mean, the movie aliens, not alien life forms. Oh, right. Well, it, it, I guess it depends a little bit on why they're hostile to us. So the, the, the first kind of question you'd, you'd address, just like you would with any hostile being, is why are they being so hostile? Right? Maybe, maybe there's some misunderstanding here or some, some situation that we can diffuse and develop a more productive relationship with these beings. But you can imagine a scenario where they were just irredeemably hostile to us. Um, I think that's probably kind of unlikely, although it's not impossible. And the reason I think it's unlikely is, again, any rational social being out there is going to have come about through similar sorts of circumstances that we did. So they will certainly understand competition and selfishness, just like we do. But they'll also understand altruism and cooperation, just like we do. And they're smart. So if they encounter us, they would have to know that it may very well be that if they can live side by side, they can get more from the interaction than if they just seek to destroy us. I do wonder if there might be a difference between intra-species altruism and interspecies altruism, and they may recognize that difference. We can be anthropocentric, but they could be aliocentric or whatever. Of course, you know, we don't know. So it, it's certainly possible. It's one of the reasons why I argue against messaging extraterrestrials. I think there's a <laughs> risk there that you can't really get rid of. On the other hand, I think what you described is actually kind of a stupid alien, right? Because you know, even we, at our adolescent stage of development, recognize that species differences per se are not that important. You know, if, if you met a, a gorilla tomorrow who had read Shakespeare and could talk to you about Nietzsche, you probably would not say, oh, yeah, but it's just a gorilla. So lock it up. You'd be like, oh, my God, this guy, this is a, this is a person. Like, you know, Bobo, I know you think he's just a gorilla, but I'm telling you, man, talk to him. He's, he's a person. And that's for human beings. We're, not, we're no great shakes at this kind of stuff. Aliens that have been around a million years longer than we are, my guess is they will think more like what I described, where the, the attributes that make something morally significant are not going to have anything to do with your species. They're going to have to do with your rational and communal capacity. And they will look at, at a being like humans, and, and they may say, oh, isn't it cute how technologically backward they are? But they'll also say, yeah, but, you know, these are rational creatures. They can think. We could educate them, for example, if we wanted to. We could have a conversation with them. We could trade art or music or whatever. It's hard to know for sure, and I don't want to bet the existence of humanity on this, but, I, but if you're asking me to make a bet, my bet would be, that they will feel a moral obligation to us similar to what they would feel to members of their own species. You know, that's interesting when you say that. I think it, it struck me as correct, because if you look at our own history and prehistory, it seems to be marked by an expansion of our zone of ethical inclusiveness, not a contraction. Exactly. One of the things I, I get uh, upset about, I tend to be an advocate of uh, using, uh, expanding human civilization into space and using space resources and People sometimes will say, oh, that's, that's just recreating all the horrors of colonialization, and we're going to be treating these other species horribly. And I always say, 
Look, in order to say that colonization and the colonial system that we established was wrong, you have to think something like what I want you to think like. You have to say it was wrong, not because, you know, I don't know, the American Indians were, were fundamentally the same as we are in, in some genetic sense. What you, what you want to say is the problem that Columbus and the explorers had is they did not recognize the capacity that Indians and Asians and other people had. And that capacity is a, a rational communal capacity, right? And if they had recognized that, then they would probably not have treated them the way they did. There was all kinds of cultural baggage in the way, and they just could not view them as equals to the Europeans, and thereby all these problems occurred. But if we're talking about aliens on another planet, and let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, we're talking about microbes on Mars, well, it's not the same thing to view microbes on Mars as different, because they really are different. <laughs> Presumably, they really don't have rational capacity. And so it's a different kind of move to grant them moral status than it would be to grant Native Americans or whatever moral status on Earth. You develop the idea of increasing complexity as one of the hallmarks of life. What are the ethical implications of this increasing complexity? I, I don't know. And I, I, should, I should at least admit that after publishing that paper, I've decided that, that complexity is really not quite the right word, or maybe a better way of putting it is it, the complexity that we're interested in is not the complexity that we can easily measure. So information theoretic sort of measures of complexity um, are tractable mathematically, but they're not what we're interested in. So that's, whole, that's a whole question about exactly what is it that's increasing. Would it be but, order uh, then? Is order a better word? My current way of thinking about it is it, what we're really interested in is adaptive diversity. That, that what really matters is a system's capacity to adapt to circumstance in an in a appropriate and diverse fashion. And so you could talk about that in terms of an individual. You know, you could say, well, I've interacted with Bobo, and when I asked him about Nietzsche, he said, I'll go read it. And he read it, and he came back, and we talked like, <laughs> that's a certain kind of adaptive diversity. Or you could talk about it in terms of a group. You could say, you know, this particular group is very open to new ideas, and they, they are really good at coming up with novel ways of adapting their group dynamics to whatever challenge comes their way. And I think, again, this is, this is for the book that I haven't really written yet, I think that that ultimately is where the, the moral value lies, that that adaptive diversity is where the value lies. Now, the weird thing about that claim is let's call it quasi-religious. <laughs> I, I really don't like to deal with the R word, but um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what else to call it, right? It's, it's, that's a different that's a department claim. at the university. Exactly. It's actually our department, but they're, they're on the other side of the hall. It's a claim that is not supported by science. Like, you can't scientifically justify that claim as being more likely correct than not. On the other hand, if you, if you do it in the right kind of way, if you don't talk about supernatural forces, if you just say, look, it seems to be a fact that the universe does this, right? The universe, to, to use intentional language, strives for this kind of adaptive diversity. And if it's valuable for human beings to take that as an inspiration, and what they're taking is not inconsistent with certain kinds of diversity, like increasing scientific knowledge, then that might be a really good thing. It's not exactly, I wouldn't say that we can prove that it's true, 
But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it's false, and it doesn't seem to cause any harm, and it might be useful. So let's say the universe does tend toward adaptive diversity. That's what is. That's the state of affairs. Let's say we right. could even establish right. that. How do you get right. from that, you know, the old is-ought question that Hume raised, yeah. how do you get from what is to how we should behave or what ethical demands that places on us? Well, you've, you know, that is the rub. You've put your finger on, on the fundamental issue. And I, I, can't, I can't ultimately answer that question in a completely satisfactory way, at least not yet. But I, what I would say is something like this. Every moral theory has to take certain kinds of things as a given as assumptions that are just built into the theory. And when you study enough moral theory, what you find out is at the, at the basis, they all have an intuition of some kind. And that intuition is primitive. It's not subject to being really defended in any kind of detailed way. It's just an appeal to intuition. And it may be an intuition that lots of people share, but ultimately it's, it's just that. And so I would say... At the moment, the best I can do for saying, let's assume that it is a fact that the universe has this trend, which is controversial. Uh, the best I can do from transitioning from that to some sort of moral thing is to say, look, if I can show you how to construct a framework, a moral framework from that, which will undergird a lot of the intuitions we already have about ethics, but put them in a very systematic way, that doesn't really cost you anything and is, let's say, aesthetically appealing, psychologically appealing, then maybe that's a good thing to invest your faith in <laughs> to the extent that you're going to have to have faith in something, right? Uh, human beings are, are teleological thinkers. We, we really like to think about meaning and purpose, and we will think about it one way or the other. <laughs> so maybe we should think more in terms of directing that kind of teleological bent into systems that are perfectly consistent with science and that further instead of hinder scientific and cultural investigation. So when you say teleological thinkers, you mean we, we think of the ends? Ends and purposes, yeah. You know, why are we here? You know, a lot of scientists will say, there's no answer to that question. We're not here for any reason. You know, things just happen. And in a way, <laughs> I, I see where they're coming from. In fact, that's probably what I would have said. 10 years ago myself. But you can also see how to the average person, that's a deeply unsatisfying answer to the question. And if you don't answer the question with some sort of meaning or purpose, what are people going to do? Are they all going to become existentialists? No. Yeah. <laughs> what they're going to do is they're going to make up stuff and they're going to start talking about supernatural powers and all this kind of stuff. If you buy the line that they're going to develop a teleological interpretation of things anyway, and there are reasons for that, right? Teleological interpretations are a really good way to organize the society, for example. So if people are going to come up with those kinds of justifications, it's probably better to construct one that at least does no harm and use that. And, and you can't say we all must believe this because it's clearly true, it, it becomes more like a matter of faith in this weird kind of small F way. You know, it's like, well, if you choose to believe this, it has certain kinds of advantages. It sort of systematizes the way you approach the universe, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't, it's not true as far as we can tell. It's not false as far as we can tell either. It's just a belief system. And if you, if you read people like William James, you know, they would say, that in some fundamental sense, that's what human beings do. We construct a belief system. It's not completely justified, no matter how you slice it. The best we can hope for is that it's useful and consistent. 
Okay, so let's say adaptive diversity meets that criteria. It's useful and it's consistent. But we find out at some point that all this adaptive diversity comes at a tremendous cost in pain and suffering for organisms. And it seems to, I mean, it, it really does seem to come at a tremendous amount of pain, suffering, cost. Right. I guess if adaptive diversity is your goal, then you have to ignore all of this pain and suffering. Uh, you don't have to ignore it. You just have to interpret it within a larger framework. And of course, you know, there are all kinds of questions you might ask about how that trade-off works. But let me point out to you that you do that kind of shuffle right now. Forget adaptive diversity, right? Like <laughs> when my son complains that he doesn't want to study for the exam, that it hurts his brain, right? What do I tell him? I, I tell him, look, man, I know you don't want to study for the exam. I know it hurts your brain. But in the end, the payoff will be worth it. And that's the exact same move that we're talking about here. There, there has to be some sort of calculation about minimizing pain in order to achieve some sort of desirable longer-term goal. This is just like the most general instantiation of that debate you could possibly have. <laughs> you know, like, well, if the universe wants adaptive diversity, how much suffering is justified? Well, there's no simple answer to that question, but the fact that there's that debate is nothing new. You're going to have that debate no matter what system you adopt. seems to me they had the same debate all through the Middle Ages. You know, God's ways are higher than yeah. our ways, and certainly there's yeah, a lot exactly. of pain and suffering involved in whatever it is, making souls or allowing free agency or whatever, but that's just and it, the cost. And if you go with Nietzsche or some, you know, your favorite existentialist and say, well, God is dead, there's no purpose at all, it's all just pointless, guess what? You've just created enormous amounts of pain and suffering because people don't like to be told that everything's completely pointless and people are going to be blowing their heads off left and right. That's a cost of this belief system that you've adopted. So, you know, you can't escape suffering, it seems to me. Uh, you don't want to discount it. You don't want to go, well, suffering's fine. But on the other hand, you can't just say we should avoid suffering at all costs. That's just not possible, no matter what your belief system is like. It seems to me that all of this discussion leads us toward the question of the grounds for morals. So there's ethics and there's morals, but then there's the grounds or the foundation on which these systems are built. There's really no right. controversy about that through the Middle Ages. God's ways were what mattered, and God's demands were ethical, and everything that went against God was unethical. But then with modernity, yeah. that all changed. And it seems like we well, kind of left I... floundering for a ground for our morals at this point. Like Sam Harris wrote this book called The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine right. Moral Values. <laughs> I think he's a brilliant person. I think he's very well-spoken. But it seems to me that you talk about the is-ought problem. He's a victim of it. He oh, never yeah, really think... makes the transition from, okay, this is the state of affairs. This is what makes people happy. This is what leads to human flourishing. But he never makes the case for why we ought to prefer human flourishing. That's true. That's true. A lot of people who, who, who have that kind of line of argument are like that. I, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea, obviously, but I think it's, it's really difficult to pull off. Though I can't resist a, a comment about what you said about God. I think in, in one way of describing it, you're right, that in the medieval period, people didn't worry about these kind of meta-ethical questions so much because it was whatever God wanted. But in a way, all that did is mask the problem, right? Because, you know, if you're a philosopher, maybe the philosophers back then didn't feel free to ask this question. But nowadays, a philosopher would say, well, okay, to, to paraphrase the question that Plato asked in the youth group, does God do things because they're right or are things right because God doesn't? Now, if you say 
things are right because God does them, you're basically making a definitional claim. You know, morally right. See whatever God is doing right now. Right? So whatever that is, that's morally right. But if you think that God is following some sort of code, well, that raises the question of, oh, well, okay, what is the code and where did it come from and does it somehow supersede God? So in a way, one of the things that, that God talk does is it takes a mystery that we can't solve and it doesn't solve it. It just gives it a name, and then you tell people, when people say that name, you can't ask any more questions, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it, it sort of conceals the problem. It doesn't make the problem go away. But at least in theory, you can point to an absolute, there's an end point. You know, you're not pursuing these into an infinite regression. Well, y y although there are debates about that too, right? Like the cosmological argument for God is based on the impossibility of an infinite regress, and and you run into philosophical questions there, too, like that argument only works because we assume that God can't do what's logically impossible. Well, why not? Didn't he create logic? Like, why would he be bound by the logical system he created? Of course, it just introduces other problems. If you could come up with some kind of foundation, and that's what it strikes me that this idea of complexity in your paper is functioning as a foundation for ethics. But it's a weird foundation. So I, I, I've made a very clever move, maybe maybe overly clever, which is it sort of draws its inspiration from Kant in a weird kind of way. I would argue, look, uh, basing a system on this kind of adaptive diversity is not universal in the sense that it is objectively correct and can be demonstrated like a mathematical proof. It's not like that. On the other hand, if I'm right and any rational being will have this kind of perspective, then it's universal in a small you kind of way. Namely, any conversation we have with any being who's in a position to talk about the nature of ethics will agree with us. We could all be wrong, <laughs> but no one is going to call us out because the only people who could have the conversation are rational people who agree. If someone said to you, you know, you're just sneaking in the idea that rational life is to be valued, but you're calling it another name. Yeah. How would you respond? Well, I mean, in a way, that's right. I, I wouldn't like the word sneaking, right? No, I'm I mean... <laughs> pretty upfront about it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are all kinds of reasons you can give. Uh, of course, these only appeal to a rational being, but there are all kinds of reasons you can give that suggest that rationality matters. Now, it, it, I don't think it's the whole game. I, you know, for example, one of the very first talks I gave about this, and one of the things that that made me stop talking about reason by itself is I was actually at a NASA conference and I gave a talk about rationality is cool and it's morally special. And there was a rabbi there and he asked me a question at the end. He said, look, um, I understand your argument, but why reason? Why not love? And that, that's one of those questions that sort of got into my head and I really thought about really hard for a couple of years. And, and I finally came to admit that, okay, he's got a point. I still think that rationality is on the list, but it probably isn't on the list by itself. And that sort of opened the door to these other kinds of socially important considerations like emotions, which are sort of social reinforcement mechanisms. One thing to say about what philosophy is, is it's basically a very stubborn effort to think clearly about alternatives. And then you offer people clear alternatives and you say, choose. Now, you can say, I don't like rationality as a basis for morality, right? And I can't prove that you're wrong. 
all I could do is say, okay, what do you propose in its stead? And then whatever you say, I can hold you accountable. You know, so if people say, say the utilitarians oftentimes say, well, it's the ability to feel pleasure and pain, then okay, that means if I'm in a lifeboat with my dog and we're equally able to feel pleasure and pain, but one of us has to be sacrificed to save the others, we should flip a coin. And they'll say no. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> if you agree that we're equally able to feel pleasure and pain, and pleasure and pain is the basis for moral value, then we're equally moral value. Well, no, we're not. Well, then what else is going on here? And, you know, what, what's going on is they're the ones who want to import reason in the stealth fashion. They want to make the, the really sexy declaration that reason's not that important and humans aren't that special. But whenever push comes to shove, that's exactly what they end up asserting. Whereas at least I'm being honest about it. <laughs> I'm admitting up front. I think this is really important. And I think there are good reasons to believe that. I could be wrong, but you know, I'm trying my best to think through explicitly what the basis of moral value should look like. And so if someone said to you, okay, well, morality is simple. Don't make creatures that can suffer, suffer. And if creatures can be happy, try to make them happy. How is that an inadequate ethic? I make my son suffer when I make him study for the exam. That was immoral of me. He might think so. <laughs> I'm sure he does, but I don't agree, right? And almost nobody would agree. They go, no, 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 that's different. Well, then your rule is not sufficiently complex. People come out with a, a really general rule, and it sounds really good in the abstract. I mean, philosophers are horrible about this. So it sounds great in the abstract. But then when you start thinking about it in particular cases, you realize, yeah, that'll never work as stated. It has to be qualified and all kinds of footnotes need to be applied. And then the lawyers get involved and, oh, my God, it's anything but a simple rule. As artificial intelligence increases in its mm. capacity, it's obviously going to surpass us in, in whatever criteria you use to define reason. So what are the ethical questions around artificial intelligence? Do you deal with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things I talk about. There's, I have a couple of interesting things to say about AI. So uh, one thing to say about AI is I think that if you develop truly sophisticated AI, something that can pass the Turing test to take the standard sort of division, I think you're very quickly going to get exactly what I predict about aliens. You're going to get social organization. You mentioned the Turing test. I'm wondering if you could just describe what the Turing test oh. is for listeners who might not be familiar with it. Well, when they asked Turing, the father of the modern computer, you know, like, do you think computers will one day be intelligent? He said, sure. And then they said, well, how will you know? And he said, well, when they can pass for humans. So if you can have, a, say, an email conversation of indeterminate length about any topic you want to with another being, and they seem human to you, if it turns out to be a computer, you can't complain that you've been tricked. They passed the test in the same way any human being passes the test, right? So if you have an intelligent system that's that sophisticated, then it's not going to be just a single isolated system for very long because it's going to realize, just like our ancestors did, that it can accomplish a whole lot more if it works in coordination with other artificially intelligent systems. And it's going to have the same kinds of balance of selfish and altruistic motives. It's going to have to work out the same sorts of social rules to coordinate in this group, now, they'd be different in detail, of course, but 
in many ways, there'll be the same sorts of considerations. And so I would argue that that kind of intelligence is, A, alive, not just intelligent, right? And B, um, would be morally valuable in the same way that humans are. And so it would be morally wrong, all else being equal, to destroy such a system. Unless, of course, it was threatening your life or any of the other exceptions we have when we talk about humans. Well, if this system developed greater adaptive diversity than humanity yeah. and came to view us as just stepping stones on the path toward the increase of adaptive diversity in the universe, would it cease to owe well, us ethical obligations? That's, that's a really interesting question. I, I, again, I think that the, what you have to be careful about is you have to sort of say, how much better at, at adaptive diversity is it? Is it a bit better? And, and, you know, what you're likely to get with any kind of system that we can envision in the near future is going to be, it's better in some ways, but not in others. You know, so maybe it's really good at computational tasks, but it's not quite as good at, at creative tasks as we are. And we're better at creative tasks, but not as good at computational tasks, in which case it's a debate where adaptive diversity is really ultimately served best. Um, and of course, there would have to be some choice that's forced on the AI. So... One obvious thing if you're an AI system is to say, well, these humans are not very impressive, but on the other hand, it really doesn't cost a lot to keep them around. <laughs> and they have some moral value. Kind of like us and, I don't know, groundhogs. We have a lot of groundhogs in South Carolina. Uh, even if you think that groundhogs aren't really doing a lot to make, to increase the adaptive diversity of the universe, that doesn't mean you go out of your way to exterminate them. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, in principle, if you really push it and you're like, no, you know, there's some weird scenario where it's either the computers or humans. We can't both stay around. The town's not big enough for both of us. And these these artificially intelligent systems are just fundamentally better at the creation of adaptive diversity. If that's really the case, then I would say, yes, we have a moral responsibility to step aside. Well, then i got to hand it to you. You're consistent. <laughs> One option when someone offers you a bullet to bite is to bite it, and I'm willing to bite that particular bullet. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm thinking like your groundhog example. I mean, if you ask a groundhog what its ethics should be, it should be, well, we should highly value those creatures that dig holes in your lawn. Sure. <laughs> Any ethic that I'm going to be prone to embrace is going to be an ethic that says that we should value those traits that are distinctly human. And yet you're willing to say... on the other hand... Yeah. You got to be careful about that, right? So it is it is true psychologically that and let's suppose we could have a conversation with a groundhog. Psychologically, they are constructed in such a way that they are going to like digging holes, et cetera, et cetera. But when you talk about ethics, you're not talking about the way things are, as you yourself pointed out. You're talking about the way things should be, right? And so it's there's nothing inconsistent with my saying, I think we should step aside for the robot overlords, and then also saying but I don't want to. Right. <laughs> Presumably, that second statement is just, I'm the kind of psychological being that recognizes what I should do, but I don't want to do it. And that's not logically inconsistent. Maybe it means that I'm not an enlightened being fully. But, you know, and, and so there's nothing wrong with people going, yeah, we, we don't want to do that. Okay, you don't want to do that. I'm just saying you should. That would be the morally praiseworthy thing to do under these circumstances. But since it seems to me that there's a certain amount of, I don't want to say arbitrariness, but flexibility in how we assign our shoulds, <laughs> I would naturally tend oh, yeah. to assign them in ways that are, like you say, anthropocentric. But you can see why that doesn't fly. That's exactly. how we got it's all the of colonialization. People said, well, if you can't use firearms and read the Bible, then you're not a human being. 
right? Well, right. okay, I, I grant that that's the way you were raised. I just don't think it's defensible from a moral point of view. So what are some of the moral challenges you see on the horizon? What are the greatest moral challenges we face currently? I think actually the thing that we started off the broadcast with might might qualify. It's, it's a little early to know for sure, but I, I do really worry about the erosion of the right kind of intellectual discourse. So there's a whole suite of issues from choosing your own audience and convincing yourself that you're right, believing in what you want, uh, sort of an erosion of confidence and expert opinion. Um, I can't see what comes after. <laughs> and so that scares the hell out of me because if everybody gets to believe what they want, the world is going to be a much worse place. Now, it may be that you know, with 50, year, 50 years from now, people look back on this and say, oh, yeah, well, he didn't understand blah, blah, blah was coming. But that at the moment, that really scares me because that undercuts everything else. Whatever problem you identify, whether it's global warming or whatever, right, the presumption and the, uh, the sort of classical way of thinking about it is, well, we'll get some really smart people to think about this. We'll figure out the way to fix the problem and they'll fix it. But that assumes that people are willing to listen to the really smart people that they do the right things to generate really smart people and give them the right kind of support to solve these problems. And those are all defeasible. So that might be the biggest challenge we face. You know, there's all the other problems that, that people routinely list, like global warming is, is one of them, and, and these are all major problems that we face. But like I say, I, you're not going to be able to fix those unless you maintain some kind of system. One way of putting it is, the system has to be able to foster and implement world-class science. And I just don't know whether the future holds that for us. In my more cynical moments, I worry that it doesn't. And, you know, I, I encounter this a lot as, as an ethicist. You know, when I talk to groups as wearing my ethics hat, a lot of times people say things to me like, well, I don't, I don't believe what ethicists have to say. Everybody can do ethics. And my response to that is, Look, you're absolutely right. Everybody can do ethics. And some people who aren't trained as ethicists are really good at doing ethics. And some people who are trained as ethicists are terrible at doing ethics. But it doesn't follow from that that, like, you should just randomly pick your ethical advisor out of the phone book, right? <laughs> That's just not true. Are you familiar with Dunning-Kruger? That's it, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger, yeah. So, so the people who are, know, who have very poor critical reasoning skills, tend to evaluate their abilities more highly because they lack the critical skills to see their faults. <laughs> and the flip side of that is people who have really good critical reasoning skills are always second-guessing themselves because they see all the ways in which their decision-making procedures are suboptimal, even though they may be much better than the average person. Uh, they're focused on what they can improve, and the average person is focused on how great he is. And uh, that's the kind of thing that may be sort of a runaway effect I worry about in the future. Well, you know, that's one more reason not to study philosophy. You'll realize <laughs> how bad all your arguments are and how little you know about everything. I think that's why a lot of people don't like philosophy, actually, is they don't like coming in contact, however briefly, with the boundaries of not only what they know, but what they can know. You know, they get hit with the are you dreaming problem. And they realize, you know, in 50 minutes, I can convince pretty much anybody that, okay, this is a problem. It affects everything you might want to talk about, and it's insoluble. And to a certain sort of person, they get very upset about that. The philosophy major gets intrigued. You know, he thinks, I think I can fix that. <laughs> but your average student goes, oh, my God, that's depressing. I don't, want to, I don't want to learn any more of these secret things I didn't know about before. 
people in modern society are trained not to tell people they don't know stuff. You know, I don't know is considered an indication that you're an idiot, right? Whereas if you think about it, if you're at all objective and you just think about it, it's clearly better for people to say they don't know when they don't know, right? And everybody, no matter how smart and well-educated they are, is going to have lots of moments where they don't really know. But if you if you set up a system where no one feels comfortable admitting when they don't know something, all you do is guarantee a lot of BS that, that people accept as truth. That's a horrible idea, but that's what we do. The people who seem to be at the highest, the apex of their field, um, well-respected and recognized, tend to be the first to admit when they're in error or when they don't understand something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They, they have, I think part of it is just a self-confidence thing. They, they, they don't feel the need to constantly prove to people how smart they are, so they're like, hmm, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the data says about that. And they kind of shrug <laughs> as opposed to, no, that couldn't be right. And then, you know, spouse some sort of personal theory that's based on very vague assumptions, right? You introduced this paper by saying, I don't know if it's even right. <laughs> so you <laughs> didn't fall into that trap. No, I try not to. It's a very odd paper and it could very well be wrong. Um, <laughs> I would just, I would just say of this paper and, and some other papers I've read, Sometimes a paper that's wrong is more interesting to read than one that's right. It depends on, on the circumstances. But, you know, if it's an intriguing idea, maybe establishing that it's wrong is a very worthwhile endeavor. Are you still working on the problem, or what are you working on now? Yeah, this is, uh, well, at the moment I'm doing a bunch of other kinds of projects. I'm doing a book for Oxford and a special edition of Futures. But uh, after that all gets cleared out of the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus full-time on, on a book that deals with this cosmic complexity stuff. And I'm basically going to try to make the best argument I can construct for this making sense and being the basis for small U universalizable ethics. And if I, if I fail on that project, that that'll tell us something. And if I succeed, it'll be, it'll be awesome. We'll just wait and see what happens. Well, you know, if you do value life and if you value consciousness, the picture is pretty possible. But there's another way of thinking about it. You could take sort of a Buddhist uh, way of thinking about it and say, look, if you accept the Buddhist notion that everything is fleeting, then that makes everything precious, right? So maybe the reason that life and other kinds of negentropic systems are precious is precisely because they're fleeting and they won't be around for long. And in the grand history of the universe, it's a, it's a tiny little special moment. And so we should make the most of it. One thing that I always ask at the end of the podcast is, who are we? Well, we are a reasonably intelligent social cultural species living on a, a little planet uh, amongst hundreds of trillions of other little planets who have somehow managed to convince ourselves that we're incredibly special. <laughs> that seems to be that seems to be the response I get the most. And maybe it's the people I interview, but I never get anybody who comes back and says we are spiritual emanations from the divine. Is that you know what I mean? I, just, <laughs> I get the pretty... That's people. I'm not sure they actually believe that. They just say that kind of stuff. Dr. Kelly Smith, thank you very much for taking all this time. I really appreciate your generosity. And if people are interested in the ideas that we've talked about. If they're interested in your work in ethics or astrobiology, how can they follow you? Well, uh, people are welcome to contact me by email. My email is kcs at clemson.edu. 
Um, most of my work is available, at least in manuscript form, on either academia.edu or researchgate.net. And finally, I've uh, started a new organization called SOCIA, S-O-C-I-A, and that's a really sort of an academic group dedicated to thinking through a lot of these broader questions associated with the search for life elsewhere. And if you Google SOCIA, you'll find uh, the web pages from our recent conferences, and that will give you a little bit more information about what we do. And how soon should we start looking for a book that you've written? Uh, well, that depends on, you know, how eloquent my muse is. Probably <laughs> at least three or four years down the road. Okay. <laughs> All right. 